Living in retrospect is a bad idea, and sometimes we let our same old stories hold us back from the new adventure God has for us. But here's the truth. God wants to restory us, transforming our tales of tragedy into epics to anticipate. In this podcast, Mary DeMuth interviews people who have lived through God's powerful restory process, where they've discovered healing, joy, and a brand new perspective. So let's shed that old, painful story and find the freedom we've been longing for. The Restory Podcast starts now. The Restory Show, Season 2, Episode 2. Hey, everyone. Thanks for coming back to The Restory Show. And I'm here with Boz (laughs) Chibijan. Now I did it wrong. Chibijan. And he's got this crazy last name. And uh, he is with me today to talk about his story. And thanks for coming on the The Restory Show today. Listen, I think I called you Mary DeMuth a few times, so yeah. I think you can you can okay. mess up my name. But quite frankly, you didn't really mess it up. I, it's better than two-thirds of the people that, that even try to say it. A lot of people don't even try. Yeah, they're just like, what in the heck? There's too many consonants in that name. It is. That's you're right. All right. So, Boz, I'm just going to ask first. Um, I won't you know, say your whole first name because I've already teased you about that in other places. But I'm just going to ask for the listeners, for their sake, who are you? <laughs> Okay. Well, who am I? I have no clue. Still figuring that out. Uh, (laughs) But I do know that uh, about almost 48 years ago, uh, I was uh, born, uh, and my birthday is coming up. Happy Uh, birthday. Thank you. Uh, I was born in in Switzerland, actually. My my father was Swiss, and my mother's American. And so uh, we were, I was born there, lived there for a couple years as I was young, and then they uh, moved to the States. Uh, I'm one of uh, seven siblings. Uh, there was never a quiet moment in the Chavijan house and we're all very loud. Um, (laughs) this does not surprise me. (laughs) There may be an introvert in there somewhere, but I, we still haven't found them. Um, and, uh, interesting aspect, uh, or point about my family is I, I'm also, uh, one of the grandchildren of, uh, Dr. Billy Graham, the, uh, the renowned preacher, the, uh, the 20th century. And so that, uh, that was a just made life very unique. It was uh, I loved it. Um, I I think that uh, oftentimes people ask how you know how was it having him as my grandfather? Was there a lot of pressure to behave in a certain way or act in a certain way? I said, well, if you have the last name Chavijan and not Graham, you get by <laughs> a little bit more. Um, and then people go, well, I thought your grandfather was Billy Graham. How's your last name Chavijan? And I said, because I have a mother. <laughs> and I, okay, that's great. She was um, a Graham, but not anymore. <laughs> she's a Graham. That's true. So. Um, Anyway, it was just it was it was great. I mean, as a so I think as a as a child growing up in a in a you know Christian home, a dysfunctional Christian home like just about every other one. Uh, it was not a it was not a uh, over legalistic home. It was not uh, you know I, it's just real. I mean, I think one of the things I love about my parents was that both of them made uh, the relationship with Jesus real. Uh, that's the good, bad, and the ugly. There was no it was not all about what looks good on the outside and and everybody's got to portray that we have it all together. I think we we grew up in a home where we didn't have it together. and um, and I saw that in the life of my grandfather as well. I think he um I, I grew up in the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s and and that was a time where a lot of preachers, especially television preachers were uh, were dropping like flies because of scandal. and you know as much as I knew that Daddy Bill, that's what we called him, Daddy Bill. You know, that he didn't fall into that category. You know, when you're growing up and you're sort of skeptical, you're, you're watching those for those things. And uh, I'll just, over and over again, it was just amazing that the, the, the man who would preach in front of hundreds of thousands of people 
was the same in front of the camera as he was behind the camera. And I saw that in real life. And I, so I saw the authenticity of genuine Christianity at work. Yes. And in a man that, you know, uh, could have very easily faked it, could have very easily began thinking that it had more to do with him than about God. That would be very tempting and alluring for any of us in that position. And again, over and over again, my experience was that Daddy Bill really wanted to point to God in all things. Now, that doesn't mean he did all the time. And Daddy Bill would be the first one to say that he he has failed in many areas of his life. But again, it went back to that genuineness of Christianity, of genuineness of Christian faith, which is uh, that we are we are all uh, in many ways train wrecks. We don't have it all together, and that's what makes Jesus all that much more beautiful to me. I agree. And I remember you telling me a couple stories, maybe recount one for the listeners about how he didn't want to have like the Lincoln Town car or, you know, the nicest suite in the hotel. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm in a crowd and you are too. You're surrounded in academia. I'm surrounded by Christian writers and speakers where I am seeing from the outside some very, some people who very much give in to that kind of hype of, well, now I'm this. So, I need to have, you know, this many, you know, plane rides and this many, you know, nice cars or whatever. Yeah, that's just not, that's not the daddy bill that I know. I mean, I, I, like you said, I mean, I would, I'd be with him when he would get to an airport and they would have a, his assistant has rented him a a Lincoln town car and he'd want him to return it and to get a Buick. I mean, he just, (laughs) it wasn't about him. Um, You know, I find a lot of times when people become more quote unquote successful in the Christian world that uh, they get bigger and God gets smaller. And what I observed in the life of daddy Bill was that as he got older, he, he got smaller and God got bigger. And for a young guy to watch that and see that in a man who, uh, literally could pick up the phone in five minutes, be on the phone with the president. And then mm. as soon as he hangs up, pull the chair out for the lady who helped them cook their meal to invite her to, to eat dinner with them. It's just real. And I, I love that. One quick story that I always like to recount because I think it portrays really who he was and is um, in a pretty powerful way. He invited me to go with him to the 1988, I think, Republican convention in New Orleans. He and I had a both an interest and affinity for politics. And so he'd invite me to these things. So I I uh, went down with him uh, and a friend down to New Orleans. And I remember one night he was staying at a different hotel. I think he always stayed at Marriott's. I think because he, I think Marriott, Bill Marriott would give him the rooms for free, but my room was not free. So I was at a different, probably much cheaper hotel. And um, I remember thinking we, my friend and I, we wanted to go out and visit New Orleans, like just go out and about the town and probably not to do anything uh, very godly. Uh, but I remember thinking like, we need to find a car. So we're like, where are we going to find a car? I said, well, you know, they always rent Daddy Bill a car, but he never drives it. It just sits there. So let me go see if if uh, maybe he'll let us borrow his rental car. So we go over to his hotel. And I remember getting in the elevator. And I was, as we're on our way up, I remember thinking, you know, it's like Friday night. It's like 9 o'clock at night. There's no way Daddy Bill's going to be in his room. There's all these events and socials and parties. And he could be wherever he wants in this city, meeting and talking with whoever he wants. I strongly doubt he's here. But since we are, uh, we're are in the hotel and already in the elevator, let's at least try. So go knock on the door about to turn around to, to leave. And uh, lo and behold, Daddy Bill answers the door, invites us in. He's in his pajamas. Mm-hmm. And we start talking. And I remember looking at the corner of my eye and, and on the bed was his Bible and it had been open. And I remember thinking that really hit me pretty hard as a, as a young college guy. I remember thinking, you know, here's, here's a guy that could be anywhere he wants tonight. And he chooses to be with Jesus. And, and he's not doing it. You know, he didn't hear the knock and run and get his Bible and throw it on the bed. <laughs> make it appear. It just, 
that's who he enjoyed being with. And, uh, and that has had a significant impact. I always ask myself in life is, is that who I want to be with? Uh, do I like to, to, to enjoy spending time with Jesus more than, than anybody else, even though the other opportunities are, are knocking? And so a uh, good impact on my life. I left, we left that night. Uh, I didn't leave with the car keys of the rental. We left a bit convicted, uh, but also with a memory that, uh, that I'll never forget. That's awesome. And so you went to college, and were you pre-law at that time? Uh, yeah, I think I was. I was political science. So uh, I had always wanted to be uh, a lawyer ever since my mom will say ever since I was about four or five years old. Um, I Were think you after, an argumentative little kid? Is that why? Uh, stubborn. Uh, <laughs> argumentative. That's that's something you probably have to ask her, but I would strongly <laughs> discourage you from doing an interview with my mother. Uh, <laughs> you probably need about two or three hours and you'd have to bleep certain sections of it. <laughs> it would be entertaining, I doubt it. Awesome. Uh, so... So I went to, uh, yeah, I always wanted to be a lawyer. So I went to um, a little small liberal arts uh, university, uh, and I'll give a shout out for Stetson University in Deland, Florida, one of my all-time favorite places in the world. And just, yeah, I was a, was a political science major at Stetson uh, with a trajectory of going to law school. Uh, my junior year, I met, in fact, it was the summer between my junior and senior year at Stetson, which is in a small town in central Florida. In the summer, the school empties out. There's only like 20 200 people at the school. So any students that are left at Stetson. The leftovers. Uh, the leftovers <laughs> connect with each other and talk with each other. So you may never talk to the student throughout the semester. <laughs> but, but if you're, you're a the leftover. Only player, you're going to talk. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so there was this uh, pretty uh, student there named Lydia. And of course. she, had, in fact, interestingly enough, she had been, she had been a, uh, she had dated my previous roommate at some point in time. So I'd met her once before because she had come knocking on the door at the dorm one time. But didn't know her much, and we started hanging out together and uh, just became really, really good friends over that summer. Uh, she was already planning to graduate and go to go get her uh, master's degree at uh, Wake Forest, and I was planning to go to law school up in Alabama. And and so uh, it was just funny because we, over probably about four or five months, I, I remember getting off the phone one night at about one in the morning after talking to her, and I remember thinking, okay, this is, is this more than just a friend? Like, how many other of my friends am I on the phone with? <laughs> And uh, anyway, we're pretty girls, yeah, yeah. Hello, I'm not sure why she's on the phone with me, but I do know why. So, uh, long story short, we um, we we got engaged that spring, uh, but we just prayerfully decided that she was going to continue to go to Wake Forest to get her master's. I would never have asked her to to walk away from that, and I was planning to go get my my law degree up in Alabama. And, and so, we initially decided to um, uh, to get married after her program, which was two years. Uh, long story short, we ended up getting married a Christmas of our first year. So my first year of law school, her first year in her master's program, we got married at Christmas. So I'm in Alabama. She's in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Her parents are in Florida. My parents are in Florida. And we are getting a wedding organized in Asheville, North Carolina. Wow. Um, so we wanted my grandfather to marry us. And that long story short was that was the only time he had available. So we right. said, okay, got married and then went back to school and did that for two years, lived apart for, for two years. And, so uh, crazy. <laughs> and, and those are the, you know, those are the days before texting. Yeah. And I think prodigy was like one of the first online. <laughs> prodigy net, so, yeah. <laughs> so she eventually moved over to Alabama after she finished her program. And then after that, we, um, we headed to Florida back to South Florida for a few months. And then we ended up in Deland, back in Deland, uh, where I was a pros became a prosecutor back in, uh, I think it was 1994. Cool. And so then, uh, so you passed the bar. So that's cool. I'm glad to hear that. 12 times I did pass. No, I'm just kidding. I, 
I, amazingly, I passed the first time. Hey, good job. And part of some of the things that you did influenced your decision about what you're doing right now. So uh, at least in the ministry realm. So tell us a little bit about what made you mad and what did you encounter as a prosecutor? Yeah, you know, as a prosecutor, you, at least in our office, we were given, you know, all different types of cases to prosecute. So burglary cases, drugs, you know, uh, sale of drug cases, possession cases, robberies. But we also were were given uh, sexual abuse and sexual assault cases. And, you know, my knowledge of that issue was uh, was limited. I'd had some family, uh, a family member had been assaulted, but and knew a little bit about that. But uh, uh, But again, I don't think I really quite grasped the gravity of it until I started handling these types of cases. And I started eating with, you know, victims, especially children, you know, you meet child after child after child who's, who's been sexually victimized and a, you, you come to really admire and love those kids who have had to step forward and disclose something that, that uh, has been life changing. And, um, and you also get stirred up to do something about it. And so I, uh, I eventually asked our, our boss, the district attorney, because one of the things I noticed, Mary, was that a lot of prosecutors were not handling those cases really well. I think it's because they were uncomfortable with child sexual abuse cases. They didn't, um, I think they thought they were difficult cases to prove. They weren't comfortable with the subject matter. So as a result, a lot of these cases either never got prosecuted uh, or they would, they would charge the the defendant and then work out a really sweet plea deal. So they wouldn't have to go to trial. Yeah. And so I just saw that over time and time again. I'm thinking, man, this is like one of the most horrific crimes that exists and we are treating it like something that we don't want to deal with. And, and that only fosters and empowers offenders. So I went to my boss and said, here, I have an idea, maybe crazy, but what if you give me all of the sexual assault and child sexual abuse cases and take away all those other cases and, and give those to other people? And he was like thrilled. They were all thrilled because they didn't have to deal with them anymore. Yeah. It's the beginning of a, a unit that we started uh, back in the 90s that focused exclusively on sexual assault and child sexual abuse cases where we were able to get other prosecutors who had similar passions to uh, to go into our unit to focus on just prosecuting those cases. And so that gave me experience, experience I would have never had otherwise. Uh, you know, When you prosecute literally thousands of sexual abuse cases, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about offenders. You learn a lot about how offenders uh, act, common common behavioral uh, uh, common behaviors of offenders, common ways they deceive. You also learn uh, a lot about victimology and, and how to how victims uh, process this and, and why victims oftentimes respond in certain ways. And so I remember leaving the prosecutor's office, really wondering, what do I do with all this information that I've I've learned. I don't want to defend these guys in in private practice. So what do I do? But one of the things I remembered when I was, uh, after I left the prosecutor's office was that almost every time that I saw, had a case, a child sexual abuse case where somebody from the church came in to speak or show support on behalf of somebody in the case, probably eight or nine out of 10 times, it was to speak on behalf of, or show support of the perpetrator. Wow. And, And I remember thinking, man, I don't, I don't think, I'm not sure if that's what Jesus wants us doing. <laughs> yeah. um, where where is the church on the victim side of the of the courtroom? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a friend of mine who was for years. She was a, a from a missionary family, and she was raped for years by her brother. And she finally just recently uh, was able to report him to the authorities, and he was prosecuted. And he was eventually going to be sentenced. So she goes to the sentencing hearing, and this is just a couple years ago. She walks in and. On one side of the courtroom is her entire family, her brother, and their entire church. 
And on the other side of the courtroom, which is her side, there were two victim advocates. Wow. And she had to sit there throughout the sentencing completely alone with these two victim advocates who did a great job uh, and look at the other side of the courtroom to her supposed church family and her supposed biological family show support to the very one who had literally eviscerated her life. And um, so and the damage that does to to abuse survivors is untold. I mean, it is just the betrayal and the, uh, you know, when you think the very people in the community you think will will be there to support and affirm you, turn their back and not only turn their back on you, but actually embrace the very one who abused you. No wonder so many survivors want nothing to do with the church and nothing to do with Jesus. So that really, in, in a lot of other there's some other circumstances, but it really pushed me in a direction of saying, wow, what, what can we do to train and equip uh, Christ's church to understand this issue, to educate them on this issue so that we can better protect children uh, from those who want to abuse them, those inside the church who want to abuse them? And also, how do we equip churches to respond in ways that will actually draw people into the arms of Jesus rather than kick them out the door. And so in 2004, we started an organization called GRACE, which stands for Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. Yeah, and I've had the privilege of being a part of that on a small um, scale, and I can attest to just the great things that are going on, including, you know, just trying to accredit churches and give them, you know, information that they need so that they are not just installing cameras or they're not just, you know, having little wristbands, but that the staff is trained. And I'm just so grateful. Uh, What have you seen in the past, I would say, 10 years that, I mean, we could talk about the negatives for a very long time because I, I mean, even today I read a, a, an article about, you know, sexual abuse within missionary communities and just made me sick because for years and years and years and years and years, victims would go cry for help and they would get dismissed and the perpetrator would keep ministering, so to speak. So we could, we could say that. And I think most of the audience would definitely agree that this is, this is grievous and it's a, it's a mark on the body of Christ and it's wrong and it is not just. But what have you seen, um, shift maybe in the past 10 years, uh, that's positive and maybe some ways that you've seen God's people rise up and say no more? Yeah. Yeah. You do see that. You know, I, I, I tell, uh, I tell people all the time that, Oftentimes, we at Grace spend our our days swimming in Christian cesspools, mm-hmm. and uh, and sometimes when you're swimming in those cesspools, uh, you forget that there are some flashes of light in the darkness, and and we do see flashes of light, and those flashes of light, are, in my opinion, are the very presence of God. All right, so you um you've seen you know the Christian cesspool, but you've also seen these flashes of light, and can you give me an example of one of those? Yeah, I mean, you know, when we started Grace in 2004, that was about the same time that the whole Catholic abuse mess was being exposed up in in Boston. And and so there was a lot of, you know, at the, prior to that, sexual abuse inside any church was not discussed much at all. When that happened, what happened within the Protestant world was there were a lot of Protestants pointing fingers at the Catholic Church going, wow, what a terrible, disgusting place that is because these children are getting abused. And, and it, is, it was. But what I knew from my prosecutor days was that, yeah, but this stuff's going on in, in the Protestant world as well. We're just not talking about it. And, you know, that, that went along for a while. But I'll tell you what, 
in the last five or six years, I've really seen a shift. I've seen a shift with the broader a Protestant community beginning to discuss and talk about these types of issues, acknowledge that children are getting abused inside churches and by people who profess to be Christians, that, that institutions have often failed in responding to these uh, these victims in a way that uh, is uh, affirming and loving and godly. And, and so what we've seen in specifically is, let me just give you an example. I, I have a friend of mine who's an associate pastor of a, of a church. So this would be a flash of light. When I think of flash of lights, I'm thinking, here's God in the dark places. Woman comes to him at the church, says, I was, uh, I was sexually abused a number of years ago by my youth pastor. Uh, and that was down in Florida. And she goes, I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm, gonna, I'm thinking of reporting it. Finally, after all these years, I've been able to process and get the right help and therapy. I think I really need to report it. And I'm really concerned because I think he's still a youth pastor. But I think he's moved. Well, what does this pastor do? This pastor and another congregation member actually research and find out exactly where this guy is. They find out he's serving a church in Oklahoma. These two get on a plane. They fly to Oklahoma. They meet and confront the, the pastor of the church and say, we need to let you know that your youth pastor uh, has sexually abused somebody in the past and could very well be a danger to those children now. Pastor calls in the youth pastor. They have a, a meeting. They have a confrontation. These guys confront this guy. Of course, he denies it. Long story short, they found out that prior to coming going to Oklahoma, he had been in a church in another state that he had left under suspicious circumstances. So what do these two do? They call over to that church and look and find, ask and find out what happened there as well and, and then connect that pastor with the pastor in Oklahoma. And long story short, this youth pastor is eventually dismissed from the church in Oklahoma. Now, there's, we don't know where he is now, and I'm sure that they are trying to keep tabs of that because he could easily go and find another church. But the point of the story is that for a pastor and another congregation member to drop everything they're doing and fly halfway across the country, to do that for a, a survivor of abuse is a huge flash of light. He said, I'll never forget when I got back to church that next Sunday, uh, that survivor saw me from across the church and ran in tears and just hugged me and wouldn't let me go. Couldn't believe that for years, not only had the the church been the source of her abuse, but for years her churches had basically ignored what had happened. And for once, not only did the church affirm her, but they actually took steps to do something about it. Uh, And so I'm seeing and hearing more of those stories. The fact that Grace gets more and more calls every week uh, from past pastors who are acknowledging, you know what, we have no clue what we're doing and we need to talk to folks who do, is a huge flash of light. Because just three, four, five years ago, those calls weren't coming in because pastors either didn't acknowledge that that was a problem or they were all trying to handle it themselves when they really just didn't have the right tools in their toolbox to even begin to handle it. And they were causing actually more damage. So there are many flashes of light and it's those flashes of light that uh, that keep us going uh, every day. Yeah, that's good. And I think there's something to be said about um, just being gutsy enough to take a stand and to like place a, you know, a marker in the ground and say, not on my watch anymore. And it's, I was talking with someone recently and she didn't experience sexual abuse, but she was um, physically abused by her mom. 
And she said that what was hardest for her, I mean, obviously she said the physical abuse was not good and it hurt and all that. But she said later as an adult, she talked to people around her family and they were all like, yeah, I knew something was going on, but I just didn't want to interfere. And I think, you know, that's what's crazy making for victims as I can speak as a victim. Um, when I finally told my abuse, I had to like retell my story like four or five times to convince someone that it happened. I mean, how would, how many times would, should you have to tell your story before someone will say, okay, yeah, that must have happened. Cause why would us, why would you make that up? What a terrible story to make up. Um, and so yeah, I we, think we have double standards. I mean, yeah. think about, in any other circumstance, if, if we thought that but children in a particular household were getting uh, murdered, uh, we would probably not think twice about calling the police because we'd be concerned to, to, to want to save that child's life. But so oftentimes I see this not inside and outside of the church where people suspect, but they eventually convince themselves that their suspicions are not legitimate and that if they if they communicate their suspicions to anybody it's going to blow up and they're the person who they're concerned about is going to be upset with them and it's going to be all for nothing and then, and pretty soon they're able to basically rationalize silence all the while that when they should actually be going with their suspicion to say something to not stay quiet because you saying something may very well save the life of a little one. It may be very well the voice that that little one no longer has that stops that abuse. And we have to create these cultures inside and outside the church. It says, if you suspect, say something and and let the professionals, experienced investigators evaluate and investigate it. Don't do your own investigation before you say something because you have no clue what you're doing. Uh, Let the people who God has ordained for those positions to do those investigations and let them make the determination as to the validity of your suspicion. But that's they're never going to know if you don't communicate that suspicion to them. Right. So important. And I think about when I when I think of Jesus walking around Jerusalem and uh, Judea and all the areas around there, and I think about who he stopped for, it was almost always for a victim of some sort, victim of circumstance, a victim of health, a victim of, you know, deceit and a victim of, you know, people taking advantage of you or people that, you know, were on the outskirts of life. And, and so it's very hard for me to understand why we would side with the, with the powerful instead of siding with the weak who have no voice. Cause I think Jesus is on that other side. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, the story we all, we all know is the story of the Good Samaritan. And, you know, the Good Samaritan is a beautiful picture of Jesus. Uh, and you could argue that both, you know, the one on, on the side of the road is Jesus. Um, but also, you know, as it relates to us talking here, I mean, what did he do? The, the, the religious people who were busy with their religious stuff or their conferences or their books and their blogs and this and that were all busy doing these neat religious stuff, all the while walking by those who've been marginalized and laid to, to, to die hopeless along road, the side of life's road. And what, what does Jesus do? I mean, Jesus tell people all the time he crossed, he first notices, he crosses over the road. He gets down into the dirt with those who have given up hope and he lifts them out and carries them to safety, but also follows up and never leaves them. I mean, the, the, the good Samaritan came back. He wanted to make sure that the healing process was, was continuing. And, and we, uh, we also often that doesn't reflect the church. I, I have a friend of mine that says the higher you go up in Christian 
organizations and churches, so oftentimes the less likely you are to encounter Jesus. And that's not the way it should be. Um, But I would say this too, and this is probably another flash of light. uh, Some of the most amazing heroes that I have ever been privileged to meet have been those amazing folks who have been laying on the side of life's roads, the victims of abuse, the victims of, of child sexual abuse, who God has privileged me to know are some of the most incredible, brave, uh, empathetic, loving people still, many of them still struggling. And many of them would say they're still a mess. Um, but I can tell you that I more oftentimes see the reflection of Jesus in their lives than I do in the religious people that I, I encounter on a daily basis. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's one thing that I um, love to talk about is this idea of our weakness. And when you've been victimized like that, we can look at that as a detriment and it is, and there's healing that has to happen and there's counseling that has to happen. But I'm so grateful for the detriment because it caused me to run to Jesus. And so there, so many times I think religious folks are so strong in themselves and they think they've got it all together that they actually live their lives in such a way, in such a controlled way that they don't need Jesus. Whereas if you know you're a mess, like myself, like all of us, um, then you have a need for him and then he intervenes and then your life is changed because whenever you have an encounter with Jesus, you have a changed life. Yeah, I think that's that's awesome. It's so true. I mean, we we uh, we live so oftentimes we we talk about the gospel with our lips, but we I, I think so oftentimes are clueless as to what its implications are in our life. And and you're exactly right. The the gospel says I don't have it all together, and that's what makes Jesus beautiful. And the fact is, the gospel is about a God who who actually stepped into my box uh, and gave Himself and expended Himself for me. Um, which is amazing, but we oftentimes, and I'm guilty of this too, live our lives not wanting to step inside the box of anybody else. Um, and because if we step inside a box, they're going to see our vulnerabilities as well. And God forbid, even inside the church, people know that we're vulnerable. And uh, and that's just not the gospel that I have come to know and I've come to love. That is incarnational, God stepping into our lives, that good Samaritan crossing that street, getting down into that dirt. That's what I think our lives are are called to be as Christians. But, you know, when, when you're focused on uh, your own performance uh, and how other people think of you, that you, you're not going to do that. And, and when you're so focused on what other people think of you, you actually, at that moment in time, and I, I'm guilty of this, you're not believing Jesus says who you are. I mean, if you are tr- truly a child of the high king of heaven, uh, it frees you to be risk-taking. It frees you to cross those roads. It frees you to get dirty. It frees you to lose uh, position or authority or influence um, all for the sake of those that Jesus loves without worrying about my identity because my identity is already secured. And if your identity is secured by the God of the universe, uh, who really cares what other people think uh, as far as you trying to get their approval? Yes, yeah, so true, so true. So uh, let me ask you this, two more questions. Um, the first one is, what kind of advice would you give to someone who uh, once, who has a friend who or a spouse who has had sexual abuse in their background and they're just struggling. So how can those of us who have friends like that, how can, what's the best way we can come alongside people who are, you know, still working through their sexual abuse? That's a great question. Um, I think there are various things. I I think one is that acknowledge that you probably don't have necessarily all or any of the answers for them. (laughs) 
Um, but oftentimes survivors aren't looking for the answers from you. They, they want you to just be, be with them, sit with them, cry with them, get angry alongside them, um, walk life with them. I think sometimes Christians, we make a mistake when we, we try to come up with these sort of glib explanations for things that quite frankly will never be able to explain on this side of, of heaven. And so I can't, you know, I can't tell a, a young person or an adult, adult survivor who's crying and telling me this Jesus you're telling me about, where was he when I was being sexually abused every night by my father? Was he, was he watching? Was he hiding in the closet? I don't, I don't get that. And you know what? I, I could come up with some theological platitude that would do nothing and pr- quite frankly, maybe just make me feel a little bit better that I had an answer. Or I can look at him and say, I don't know. That's a great question. And you know what? That gets me you're sort of angry. <laughs> and I have to, to and that's one of the, the issues I'm going to take up with God one day. However, I can tell you this. I'm here right now and I am your friend and I'm walking this journey with you and I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to let you go. And I think that combined with those who are really struggling also oftentimes need qualified professional help. So help them connect with a qualified professional therapist. And I say qualified professional because a lay counselor is, is generally not going to be sufficient. People who have suffered a trauma need trauma therapy. A biblical counselor whose sole counsel is going to be to open up the Bible and point out verses is not going to help, especially to somebody whose perpetrator used the Bible mm. to abuse them. Right. So we need to be sensitive to that, to saying, we, I'm going to step into the box with you. I'm walking life with you. I'm not going to have the answers to everything. In fact, we're going to be oftentimes frustrated together. But I also want to help you connect you with support and resources, qualified resources that are going to help you learn how to process this trauma in a healthy way. So you're not. So when when you're trying to process the trauma, whether it's five years from now or 10 years from now, if a good therapist is going to give you the tools in the toolbox to know what tool to use when that moment in time comes, because right now we've got people who haven't gotten that help or have gotten bad help, and they're taking out screwdrivers when they need to be have a hammer, and there's a screwdriver to hammer a nail in the wall. Well, that doesn't work. We need people to help equip survivors with the right tools, and oftentimes we're not, as friends, we're probably not the right ones to be doing that, but we can certainly help them and connect them with those who, who will. I agree. And we can pray. We can pray. Yeah, absolutely mm-hmm. pray. And, I uh, think- and sometimes, sometimes it's not praying, and this might be controversial, sometimes it's not even praying with them at the moment. It's praying for them. Sometimes people, you know, if you've been abused by somebody who, who would pray after they abused you, and wow. I've met plenty of people who did that, me sitting with you and praying is traumatizing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't pray for you when I'm not with you. And, and, and I don't even necessarily have to tell that survivor, hey, I'm praying for you. Um, it may be better if I don't pray for them. God's still at work, regardless of whether I tell that person that I'm praying for them or not. So each situation is a little different, and you have to be really sensitive and empathetic and understanding that. So don't try to put a, 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 a square block through a round hole, because it's not going to work and probably just cause more damage. I so agree. Um, and as the recipient of very bad advice many times, <laughs> I appreciate you saying that, especially the trauma therapy stuff. You know, it is a huge trauma and that is not a simple thing to get through. You definitely need professional help for that. Um, 
Yeah. So as we finish this interview, um, it's how, already over. Yeah, it's so much fun. Yeah, uh, we're talking about well, trauma. It's for me, it's probably been like you, you know, like feels like three days for you. No, so I've, all, no, it's I've been. Good. <laughs> how has have you? If you look back over your life and maybe what your aspirations were as a teenager or a young college student, how has God restoried you? How has He given you a new story that might have surprised you? Uh, Mary, I don't think I would have ever guessed or anticipated that the great passion that God would put on my heart would be addressing abuse within the church. I, that was not even on my radar screen when I went to college. When I went to law school, I wanted to be a prosecutor. Um, I enjoyed prosecuting. Again, it just wasn't there. And I can't explain it. But when I began to encounter those cases, uh, God did grab my heart and he gave me a, a passion that I cannot explain and he's kept that passion. I, I will find myself, I don't say this too often, but there, there'll be many a day I'll be find myself driving home and thinking about a particular situation or case, and I'll find myself in tears. And and I, you know, I, I at first I'm like, man, I can't believe I'm crying about this. And then I'm like, you know what? The day I stop crying about this is the day I need to stop doing it. And so I think I think he's restoried that in my life, that I was heading in one direction as to, you know, being a prosecutor and who knows where that would lead to saying, you know what? Actually, I want. I was equipping you as a prosecutor, but for something far different. Um, and then in that process, I think that he continues to restory me as it relates to himself and his church. I mean, in the work I do, you could become incredibly cynical about Christ's church. And in many ways, I am. Um, mm-hmm. But God has also privileged me with encountering some of the most amazing Jesus followers I've ever met, whether they be my wife and my children whether they be my board at Grace, which are the, you know, they, I tell them all the time that they remind, they remind me often that not all Christians are crazy. <laughs> um, and, or, or the survivors I encounter on a daily basis. So, I mean, I, I, I encounter those amazing saints and I'm so richly reminded of God's presence and so richly reminded of the beauty of Jesus. But I'm finding his beauty in the places that I would have least expected. And that's, hey. uh, I think that's what, that's what I find so amazing and beautiful about God is we are all looking over here to find the beauty, the church or this and that. And I'm finding it over on the sides of those dirt roads where nobody is looking. That's where I see the most beautiful Jesus. And uh, and I love that. And because of that, I, I, I love that Jesus has held on tight to me through this uh, through this journey. Amen to that. And just thank you so much for sharing your story and being authentic and and your passion too. And I'm grateful that God threw that into you. He, he pushed it into you in a way. And uh, it's good because this is an issue that needs to be dealt with. And especially beautifully within the church, it should be a, uh, something that we deal with actually very well, which we don't. So I'm so grateful for you and for the work of grace. Thanks for coming on the Restory Show today. Well, thank you for your, all you're doing. Thank you for your voice. You're, uh, many a time, your tweets have brought much encouragement to me, so keep tweeting. Uh, <laughs> tweet, but tweet. I do want to, can you try the last name right before we end this? Chavidjan. Chavidjan. Yes, Perfect. I, I did it. it. No, up. not again. No, it's too many times. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Mary. Thank you. If you'd like to know more about today's show with links and extended information, please go to marydemuth.com forward slash restory2-2. And may you live a brand new story this week. The Restory Show is all about community. 
and I want you to have the opportunity to tell your amazing story. All you have to do is click the gray box on the upper right-hand side of marydemuth.com, and it says, Share Your Story. You have up to two minutes to tell us what's going on in your life and to share an encouraging story with the Restory Show listeners. And now, let's listen to a new story. Hi, Mary. My name is Jennifer. I'm a social worker, a therapist, and I've been in the field for 23 years. I was born into a family, um, an alcoholic family, um, the youngest child, and I too was molested as a result of um, just being in a family where my parents couldn't always keep an eye on me. My mom almost became an alcoholic, um, suffering from major depression. Major depression caught up with me as well in my first marriage, and um, I um, literally went downhill for about 10 years. Um, however, I thrived and I really held on tight to the Lord and I began to seek Him. And in my seeking Him, I found Him. That's what he, His Word says he says uh, that we, we will do. We will find Him if we seek Him and He will show us mighty things. So, and I guess, you know, my, my, my story stems from, you know, being in um, a very jaded, shaded, a uh, person who married a, a domestic a violence uh, person, a person who was an abuser emotionally and physically and mentally to um, becoming a woman of God in my fullness and walking away from that and having the courage to walk away from that marriage. Um, and I, I, it, it led to me writing my own book, um, and figuring out how to um, counsel people and be a counselor and a social worker despite my own uh Brokenness and my own failures and the things that I felt like I had not accomplished. Uh, today I'm remarried and uh, restored, <laughs> but I'm, I'm grateful for who the Lord is in my life and my new relationship with my new husband and my best friend. And there's so much more to tell, but um, I wrote a book about uh, who I am today um, and, and some of the things I suffered. It's called Red Sea Situations, Finding Courage in the Deep Seas of Life. And then... Um, just wanted to let you know 